20 years ago, flying home from Canada, my wife and I were directed by the TSA, the US Transportation Security Administration, into a large waiting room. We figured it was no big deal, though it seemed rather odd, and we didn't ask why. So we stood there in a large, overfull room with a few chairs, and we waited. We noticed that most of the people in the room were brown-skinned. Every so often, an agent would call a name, and someone would go into one of the little glass-walled rooms and be talked to. And then they'd come back to the waiting room. No one ever seemed to get to actually leave. People were called and sent back, and then called again. I watched a young man close to us leaning against the wall. He responded when they called out his name, Mohammed Khan. Mr. Khan was sent back to the waiting room after a few minutes and then called back in and sent back out. The third time this happened, he slid down the wall to sit on the floor, and I heard him mutter, they are just playing with me. Eventually, an agent walked through after maybe 45 minutes with no one talking to us, and I asked what was going on, why we were there, the very real white privilege of feeling safe to ask that of authority in uniform and on foreign soil. The agent, without even asking who we were, replied, oh, we know you're okay, it's just that your part of the database is down, and walked away. Leaving me rather puzzled, he didn't know who we were, he hadn't asked my name, I hadn't introduced myself, or maybe he did somehow know who we were. And the idea that there was some singular database that one section of could be down, leaving everyone around the world whose last name started with M in limbo, that was absurd. That was nonsense. Soon, we were set free and told to hurry, go that way, to catch our plane. And indeed, we did hurry, and we did catch our plane, and the flight attendant literally closed the door right behind us. The TSA had known exactly how long they could hold us. They knew who we were. A friend has since helped me to understand exactly what happened. TSA was racially profiling people, illegally, but by sweeping us up and holding us, they muddied their data with white middle-aged people. We were used to cover their tracks. We complied with authority without question. We went along, but I cannot help but wonder what would have happened if we'd been noisier up front after we entered the room, demanding an explanation, you know, 
real, full-blown white privilege? Or perhaps more powerfully and usefully, if we had refused to leave when they cut us free, if we had demanded an explanation for why they detained us, that they show us the reasons, which they could not have done, and then refused to go until they freed all those other people who'd been there even before we arrived, people like Mr. Khan. No one is free until everyone is free. We protect our rights by protecting everyone's. I didn't look out for Mr. Khan that day. I still regret it. I failed Muhammad Khan. I think I failed all of us. Now, almost all of us do this kind of thing in such situations. We are taught to comply with the instructions of authority. So what has all of this got to do with democracy and spiritual practice? Our congregations promise each other that we will affirm and promote the use of the democratic process in our congregations and in society at large. We have been radically democratic since our Puritan religious ancestors first established congregations in New England. It is a fundamental piece of our history. It is how we are organized, both congregationally and as an association, and we, in fact, assert that democracy is a religious principle. And Winston Churchill famously observed that democracy is the worst form of government ever devised except for all the others. Like every other institution created by human beings, it is imperfect. It can disappoint us, sometimes profoundly. And it is operated by human beings, flawed beings, all of us, who can be biased and ignorant and even corrupt. But it seems to be the best that we have so why are we so committed to it if it's imperfect and it often dissatisfies us? And the answer is simple. Governance is necessary. History is littered with utopian dreams and failed anarchist and libertarian fantasies that imagine a society without governance would be wonderful. And experience says that governance is required. Top-down models with a monarch or some tiny aristocracy all seem to result in the abuse and the misery of most people, the vast majority. But like all other human institutions, democracy is prone to abuse and to decay because the people we the people become lazy, we become complacent, we get distracted, or we are made 
so very desperate by the actions of the wealthy and the corrupt that they are, we are, willing to listen, listen to and accept the ridiculous statements and promises from would-be strongmen, from authority. We want the illusion of safety that authority and authoritarians promise us. And it is always a lie. The illusion comes at a terrible price. We have known, we have known since ancient times that when democracies fail, they fail into becoming tyrannies, which the Greeks defined as the worst form of government. In modern times, we have seen that this has been regularly entangled with monopolistic corporate capitalism into various forms of fascism. And this should come to us as no surprise. We have wealthy, powerful people and corporations angling to bend the state to favor them into even more unfairly and unjustly advantaging them. And these people, they move into the orbit of political figures who are willing to make a deal. Support us, and you will profit handsomely. Corrupt capitalism is thus both an accelerant and a co-conspirator in this process. Look around the world, and you will see democracies struggling all over against political and economic corruption and decay. Democracy, which 50 or 60 years ago was expanding all over the globe, is now threatened, embattled, and in decline. Less than half of all Americans actually currently say they support, support democracy, a smaller number than don't think much of it. This is a fact, and it's a fact that led Professor Timothy Snyder to write on tyranny. If you don't already have a copy, I urge you to find one and to read it. It is short. It is small. It is an easy read. There's a lot of white space on those pages. Each chapter, there are 20, is a specific lesson in how to resist the decay of democracy, how to fight against its corruption, how to help heal it, how to help build it up. Each chapter summarizes, each chapter title summarizes the whole chapter. Here's the thing you need to do. So it could be used by us as a kind of a devotional, a book of things to think about, and of practices to undertake as, for us, spiritual practices, spiritual commitments. You could use it as individuals, or you could gather in groups, even better, focusing on one chapter, one idea, one commitment each week. I'm not going to give you the whole book. His first chapter's message is simply this. Do not obey in advance. 
do not obey in advance. Anti-democratic forces will try to intimidate you, try to intimidate the people, try to get you to comply simply to see what you will comply with, what we will give up even before the state tries to demand it. Do not comply in advance. Do not obey until you are forced to. Resistance, Snyder says, shows where the line is. It tells the government, no, not this, no further. His last chapter is a single page. The title, Be As Courageous As You Can. And the entire text of the chapter is just this. If none of us is prepared to die for freedom, then all of us will die under tyranny. Now that sounds like something from the American Revolution. But the war in Ukraine reminds us just how very real and current this message is. To survive democracies, both our national one and our congregational ones, need engaged citizens who will accept their responsibilities and do their work as members, as, as citizens of that democracy. Because in a democracy, you're the owners of it. You're the sovereign. The sovereign needs to do the work. It is when we cede that power and fail to do the work that democracy dies. Our religious commitments insist that every person has worth and is entitled to dignity, always. We recognize that we are, all of us, inextricably connected to one another, interwoven and interdependent parts of the web of all things, and that what affects any one of us affects all of us. So none of us are free until all are free, and we are committed to the goal of a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. So these things, they inescapably seem to me to lead us to some kind of a democratic system because no other system supports the equitable treatment of every person as being equally worthy, deserving of a voice in how their society works, living in a free and just, peaceful world. Now this is not to suggest, because I would never suggest, that any current democracy is perfect or that even that democracy could become perfect. It is simply the best that we have now and that it offers the best possibility we can see for moving towards those goals. We are committed to democracy because it is the best way that we know to uphold our other values to ensure that we uphold the worth and value of every person as we struggle for peace and liberty and justice for all.
the radical abolitionist Unitarian minister Theodore Parker offered these words in a sermon over 150 years ago. There is the democratic idea that all men are endowed by their creator with certain natural rights, that these rights are alienable only by the possessor thereof, that they are equal in men, that government is to organize these natural, unalienable, and equal rights into institutions designed for the good of the governed. And therefore, the government is to be of all the people, by all the people, and for all the people. Here, government is development, not exploitation. That was before the Civil War. That was before the nation ended legal slavery and extended civil rights to women, which was something that Parker supported, even though his language, which I've just quoted, didn't capture that. You may have noticed Lincoln borrowed that formulation for the Gettysburg Address. But in his editing it, he took out all. Now maybe that was for brevity, a rhetorical stroke. But maybe it was for politics. Parker stressed all the people, making it clear that no one could be left out of this vision. Democracy, he insisted, exists not to support exploitation, but to ensure human development for the good of the governed. Parker's all says that real democracy had not been achieved in America and would not be until social and political inequalities were all overcome. We we are committed to democracy because it serves those ends, to protect the equal, unalienable rights of every person, to encourage human betterment. These are our values. We are committed to overcoming all social and political inequalities, right? Because that's what the beloved community is, a democracy that cares for all and includes everyone. Practicing democracy isn't just a good thing. It is for us a spiritual practice, a communal spiritual practice as well. Democracy, like love, is an active verb. It does not exist in the abstract. It means nothing to simply say, I support democracy. Democracy is something that is done, lived out. It is how we do it. It is a practice. You cannot practice something by sitting on the sidelines. We sing together because it is wonderful and meaningful and it moves us. And some of us are good at it. But they only get good at it by practicing. And choirs, people singing together, they only get good at it by practicing together. It is in committed 
and studious practice that we get good at things. So as good you use, we must be committed to actively practicing democracy. We owe this to ourselves and to others because it is the single most effective tool we have for supporting and achieving our other religious goals, our commitments, the worth and dignity of every person, the opportunity to grow, to thrive, to evolve. And only through democracy will we see movement towards a world society that offers peace, liberty, and justice to all people. It is spiritual practice to spin and weave the threads of democracy. Like all practice, this demands regular, ongoing work. Doing a little of this work, maybe daily, that devotional practice I mentioned, or maybe writing letters to the editor, perhaps both, or to officials. The point of spiritual practice is to become better improved versions of ourselves, individually and together. Through practice, we get better at it. And maybe we learn not to abandon each other in TSA waiting rooms. Doing democracy better, making it stronger, healthier, more caring, is thus an active and ongoing spiritual practice. It is, however, always a messy one. It means going beyond voting. Not that voting is not required. This is how we choose to staff our democracy's leadership. It matters that you vote. But voting is not democracy. Democracy is governance. It is the people ruling. It is necessary for us to then question that authority, to speak to it, to speak back to it. It is necessary for us to educate ourselves, to form our own opinions, what Carl Sagan prescribes for pushing back the shadows of the demon-haunted world. It means finding ways to select candidates and causes that support our values. Or it sometimes means, <coughs> excuse me, means becoming those candidates. It means staying in touch after those elections, reminding our elected leaders, whether, the one, whether they're the ones we voted for or not, what we expect of them, what we demand of them. It is our job, our ongoing job, to help make democracy work by insisting that its leaders, our leaders, do the job of governing our congregations, our association, our state, our nation, and to do those things in manners that are in accordance with our values. Their job is to govern for the good of all. Doing this work, speaking to our leaders, Working for democracy is the work of building the beloved community. And that work, that work, my friends, is ours, and it cannot be given away. 
It is work. It will be messy. It will be frustrating. And continued practice will be satisfying when, as our choirs and musicians can attest, all that work achieves harmony. And the glory and the joy of that harmony in our society will be ours as well. May it be so. And amen. <laughs>